You have to be able to see that race is a factor in America and not see it as the only factor in these situations. And sometimes it's not a factor at all. But, well, if we only report on white cops shooting black people, people will logically think that's all that happens. And then the problem is seen as one of white cops shooting black people. But, it, you know, we were in a diverse country and police departments. I mean, it's a weird defense to say cops shoot white people, too. It doesn't necessarily make it better, but it does point to what we might have to do to reduce the number of shootings. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Unspeakable podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. My guest this week is policing and law enforcement expert Peter Moskos. Peter is professor of police science and criminal justice administration at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He is the author of three books, including In Defense of Flogging, about the excesses of the American penal system, and Cop in the Hood, which was about his time working as a Baltimore City police officer as part of his field work for a PhD in sociology. He spoke with me on August 7th from his home in Queens, New York. Peter Moskos, thank you so much for joining me on the Unspeakable podcast. Thanks for having me on. So you have been writing and thinking about topics around policing and law enforcement for a long time now, almost 20 years, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, 20 years. Yeah, so for the better part of the last decade, these names of unarmed Black men killed by police, or in some cases civilians acting like police, uh, have become household names. You've got Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Tamir Rice, all in 2014, I believe. That was kind of an incredible year. Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, the list goes on and on. Did you ever think you'd see a summer like the one we're having now in 2020? What did you imagine the breaking point would be? I did not imagine this would happen. I mean, and it's been a crazy summer, certainly. Um, policing aside, COVID has played a role. Exactly, you know, what, who knows? But this things have been building um, since, yeah, 2014. Ferguson was was a big turning point. And in many ways, I, I was thrilled because I've been dealing with these issues for almost, well, yeah, for 20 years, going back to my brief policing days in Baltimore. And then, yeah, I've been a professor since 2014. I mean, 2004. And I wanted these issues to be part of more part of the public debate, but I don't necessarily like what's happened since then and recently because uh, for a long time, these problems were getting better. And now I don't see that anymore. So unfortunately, public awareness hasn't seemed to um, coincide with, with better policy. And that's, I mean, let me, so, I mean, a very basic thing when, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. You know, people, reporters will call me and say, well, how many people do cops shoot a year? And, well, we still don't know that number, but uh, how many people do they kill? And I'd say, well, we don't know. And that was frustrating. And, you know, since then, and no thanks to the government, but thanks to one specific person at at um, Fatal Encounters, uh, which is a website, and to the Washington Post, you know, people started keeping track of the number of people shot and killed by police. And that seems like a basic bit of data we need to know in order to talk about these issues. And we, you know, we've only had that now for five years. So that's an improvement. 
what does defund the police mean to you? So in New York City, Mayor de Blasio is calling for $1 billion cut, I think, to the police budget. But defunding means different things to different people. So when you hear that phrase, what do you think of? I think of it um, not just in the popular catchphrase of the past, really just couple months. It is rooted in police abolition. Uh, that, you know, I can't forget that fact. And so when people say, well, we don't, you know, we don't really want to defund police. We want to fund other agencies. That's great. We'll fund other agencies. But I think a lot of the advocates, as opposed to just supporters, a lot of the advocates of defund police would be very happy to defund police and have no additional funding for anything else if that were the choice. Some people believe that cops are the problem and not part of the solution. And so the fewer cops, uh, the better. And, you know, that's a logical assumption or logical conclusion if you see cops as simple agents of state oppression and the armed guards of white supremacy, then yeah, cops are part of the problem. And 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 if you want a revolution to change everything, you really, you know, defunding police would be a place to start on that. But yeah, it's it's not a new movement. And and the, part of the disingenuousness of it, and you know, this is also where I, I I've been very frustrated recently. I'll be honest. It's my my I love talking to frustrated people. So you've come to the right place. I mean it's it's like you know, because I've been dealing with these issues for years, and now it's just amateur hour in the police reform movement, like, oh, good God, you know, everyone's got an opinion. And, you know, some of the opinions are good, but it's just like, oh, please, we've been doing this a long time. And and we've been succeeding. That's, that's what's frustrating mm-hmm. is things have been getting better, um, despite what people want to believe. And specifically with, well, like, we can get to that later. But so the, the, the defund movement, we do need social systems, healthcare systems in America. I, I'm a firm supporter of that in a sort of classic tax and spend liberal way. I don't mind paying more taxes. And yes, yeah, some of it will be wasted, but as long as we keep trying and we fix things, we could have a better society. And look, Western Europe does a lot of this better than we do. We know there's a role model. This is not impossible. It's a heavy lift, mind you, but it could be done and we need the will to do it. So if that's what came out of this, that would be great. I mean, mental health care to me is sort of in some, I don't want to say low-hanging fruit because that implies it's easy, but it, it's its the obvious sort of solution that would have the most benefits. If people got the mental health care they needed, and sometimes that even means against their will, everything would be better. And, and you know, the, if you look at situations surrounding police-involved fatal shootings, a huge chunk of it are people who are really visibly in mental distress. You know, yeah. this isn't this isn't minor issues. Um, this is, you know, enough that the reporter at the scene, you know, gets people saying, oh, yeah, he crazy. Right. Um, that kind of situation. Cops don't want to deal with that. And cops certainly don't want to shoot those people. Um, but we somehow have a society and guns are a big part of it. Or um, we put cops in that situation. The thing about defund is we could set up, we can make a better society. And then as demand for police goes down, we could have fewer cops. That's the way to do it. But this whole putting the cart before the horse thing and saying, well, you know, generally police departments get about, and it varies a little, but they get about 7% of total municipal and state funding. So that includes money that the state spends in a city, but it's about 7% of what is spent in a city goes to policing. The idea that we have to, that we can only improve the world by taking from that 7%, and ignore the other 93% is is just absurd to me. I mean, that shows that, you know, it's, it's, it's an anti-policing movement more than it is an improved society uh, movement. 
And, you know, let, let's fix these systems. But the idea that we're just going to get better policing by putting less money into law enforcement is is absurd. And we are seeing the reversal of, I mean, that's why I get frustrated, this, you know, the increase in shootings in many, if not most cities right now. You know, New York City, it's it's double. In the, well, it's more than double in the past two months, and it's a little less than double the year to date. But this is, you know, we've just seen 20 years of crime decline disappear literally overnight. Yeah. And that is incredible. I mean, these are real victims. These are real people getting shot. And a lot of the people who are advocating for this um, do not live in those neighborhoods or know those victims. And I, I find that paternalistic. I find it depressing. I find it selfish. People don't want fewer cops, especially in high crime neighborhoods, especially um, African-Americans. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. It seems like the calls to defund the police, abolish the police, whatever it is, are coming from activists. They're coming from, I suppose, largely white people, although I would suppose, I guess, some from some black people in the Black Lives Matter movement. Some, but I would say disproportionately white. Yes. Okay. So... What kinds of things do you hear from people in poor and high crime communities about what they want from their police? What kinds of changes do they want? Are they able to even tell you to to articulate what that would look like? You know, too many cops are assholes on the street. I mean, I, I am the first to admit that um, there is a lack of Policing isn't always going to be polite, and I think that's important to say, too. Um, it's not always going to be nonviolent. We have cops to use force, and it's not pretty. But cops bring some of this on themselves just by being jerks to people who they shouldn't be jerks. Mm -hmm. um, if for nothing else, it makes the job of policing harder, Le even leaving aside the sort of perhaps greater issues of, of legitimacy and community trust. Um, it, it behooves cops to police in a way that gets compliance. And, you know, being rude to people is not a good way to do that. You know, I, I, um, I actually now find some cops. Are, I, I was a waiter for a long time before I was a cop. And <laughs> I really believe that working in a fine dining restaurant is excellent training for the, a certain mentality needed for police officers. And basically, it's how to be polite to people you hate. Wow. I've never heard that, that analogy before. That's interesting. Because there are other things, too, about the show not stopping and multitasking and but that level and customer service is not a phrase that translates to the police world well. But but that idea that you still, you have to, people have to leave, if not happy, it's not angry. And you have to put on an act a bit to, to achieve that goal. And if you hire, you know, 21, 22, 23-year-old kids who haven't really had other jobs, I, it's a skill. It's not that they want to necessarily, it's not necessarily that they want to be jerks. They simply don't have the the people skills. And it's not something that they get trained in. And, and, you know, as a cop, you don't need to because, yeah, you know, you, you are the person of authority, you know, so it's, it's like, it, it just, it creates problems at that level. So that, that is a real sort of focus that police departments could take. But along with that, people still want more policing. And I think of a student I had a while back now, and she lived in public housing in New York. And before, during, or after class, she was complaining that cops had treated her rudely in the hallway of her, um, of her building. And um, she was, she was like, she was a reverend and, you know, going to school. And I said, well, you know, I guess, you, you know, you, do you want fewer cops in your building then? And she's like, oh, no, no, I want more <laughs> um, because they've got to deal with those people down the hall. Those are yeah. the people I'm afraid of. Um, and the idea that she wanted more policing and better policing 
you could call that nuanced. It's not that complicated. Right. It sort of is as simple as that. But given the choice between, you know, as police are and as they were treating her, she still wanted more policing because basically she said, I can deal with it. Like, whatever. It was unpleasant. But, you know, <laughs> I'm a big girl and, and I got other things to worry about. Right. And they're serving an essential role here. And that is that essential role part is, you know, we can't give that up uh, while we're doing other reform efforts. Well, yeah, speaking of the essential role, you've said that the whole system of calling 911 is not the best way to administer police services. And it does seem like the police show up for all kinds of occasions that really don't require police officers. Uh, you know, it's that the proverbial cat caught in the tree. I guess that was the fire department. But you know what I mean. I mean, can you envision like a better system? Would this be like social workers showing up on a scene or social workers taught how to de-escalate potentially physically violent situations. What would that look like to you? I look, if we're willing to spend more money on that and there's co-response or social workers go first, even it would probably help, but the, the real solutions have to happen before then so that people aren't in crisis and Nobody gets called uh, because there's a regular home visit and that um, you have. That's the true preventive thing. The question of who responds, you know, New York has for now, at least more money than other cities. You know, you can try different things in cities with more money, but the solution is going to cost money. And a lot of cities and municipalities simply don't have it. So the solution probably isn't training cops to to use some tech, you know, de-escalation techniques. But it's not cops. You know, when it works, it's beautiful. There was a case just, I think, two days ago and where cops responded to a domestic dispute in Chicago and were talking to the man and using de-escalation techniques. And then the guy shot the cop. Mm -hmm. You want to put a social worker and try that? Okay. But at some point, social workers right. are going to get This is like arming too. teachers with guns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, but it's interesting because, you know, my father passed away suddenly in his apartment a couple of years ago, for example, and the paramedics were called and I think by the time I got to the apartment, there were probably like five cops in the apartment. This was in New York City. And they couldn't have been nicer. And we all just kind of sat around and waited for the coroner to come. And they kind of functioned as grief counselors. And it was sort of lovely. But I'm also thinking, like, is this the best use of, of our police force in New York City? Like, Well, first they had to make sure they didn't kill them. I mean, that's really why they were there. Okay. Uh, All right. Good to, to make know. sure a Fair crime enough. hadn't been committed. Okay. Um, af at that point, so you're going to, yeah, you do need a cop there. Um, at that, after that, I mean, yeah, look, there's a lot of slack in the police system for when emergencies hit. Is that the idea? No, but so, I mean, it would be nice if there was, if there was a public grief counselor that could go to death scenes and, and deal with people. I just, again, why does that have to come from policing or should it come from right. policing? So we have this system kind of by accident. It started in the late 60s, 1968, New York City, I believe. I don't have my notes in front of me. And the idea was to increase police efficiency, which is a word that I never like to hear when it comes to any part of the criminal justice system, because police and courts and prisons aren't supposed to be efficient. They're supposed to be fair and they're supposed to be effective. But the idea was a cop walking around on the beat can cover a bunch of area and a cop in a car can cover four times that area or whatever they the bean counters figured out. And so it was supposed to save money and it was supposed to get cops to the scene within three minutes. And it was really supposed to end crime as we know it, but instead corresponding with that, and there were other factors going on too, of course, uh, but you know, crime went up 
we depolice the streets in the name of efficiency. And I don't think policing has ever fully recovered from that. So now we have a system where anybody, in theory, calls 911 and cops show up. Now we need rapid response for ambulances if you're having a heart attack and for certainly. But most policing is not that. And a roughly half of the police department is on patrol, which means waiting around to answer calls for service. And that that should change. We need more routine, small-level positive interactions between police and the public. Um, it's good for both sides. It's good for cops to see people when they're not having the worst day of their life. It's good for the public to see cops when they're not responding to those situations. And you get that by getting cops out of their police cars. And you can only do that if we somehow scale back this 911 system. Mm-hmm. There are many things that cops shouldn't respond to. Um, that people call police for. Every cop has gotten the call from a parent saying, my kid won't go to school. That is not a police matter. And at some point, someone has to have the authority to say, sorry, but we're not going to send a cop for that. And some departments do that a little bit, but the problem is front-end person, the operator who picks up that call is the lowest paid person in the organization. So he or she, it's usually she, doesn't get the authority to do anything. Um, And of course, there'll be some tragic event where you say, sorry, that's not our business. And then, you know, someone will get killed eventually. So, you know, it's the world isn't and politicians find it easier to basically say, no, just always send a cop. But that is where a huge amount of police resources are being wasted when cops could be doing uh, better things. Okay, so let's get to part of the reason you're here. You know why you're here. There's an agreed upon narrative at this point in the media and now among the public at large, which is that there is an epidemic of police shootings of unarmed civilians, especially unarmed black men. But you can also point to statistics, uh, for instance, those published in the Washington Post that show far smaller numbers than most people imagine. I think the Post database showed that 15 unarmed blacks were shot by police in 2019, and that does not include other forms of violence, beating, choking, tasering, etc. George Floyd was not shot, so would not be included in a statistic like that. But there does seem to be a widening gulf between perception and reality when it comes to this subject. So I imagine this is something that frustrates you. And I'm wondering what kind of collateral cultural damage you see being incurred by these misperceptions. Well, some of it is, as much as we do need to focus on race, some of it is the exclusive focus on race, um, I think, is not just a red herring here, but is is counterproductive. Because, um, yes, blacks are shot and killed disproportionately, and much of that can be explained through poverty, disproportionate. I mean, every, this is America. Everything is racially disproportionate, and we only seem to sort of notice it at the at the very end. So some of it can be explained by disproportionate rates of, of violent crime and victimhood. Um, those are very real, and we don't even have the language to talk about it. But this isn't, you know, the problem is, isn't uh, the statistics don't matter when people see a video. And in a way, to some extent, you could say statistics shouldn't matter when you see an individual case of injustice. It should shock the conscious conscience. But if we want to make it better, we have to focus on what's actually going on. And it's just you know, there's going to be another bad shooting next month. I, I guarantee it because it's a big country. Um, because a thousand people are shot and killed a year, and some of those are bad. Um, and so when that happens, we have to be able to hold police departments accountable, hold officers accountable, but more importantly, figure out how to make it not happen. One of the things I've noticed since 
Washington Post started putting out that data, is there huge regional disparities, greater than racial disparities. You know, you're, you're far less likely to be killed as a black man in New York by cops than as a white man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a lot of cities out west. The rates are many times higher in places like Tulsa and Oklahoma City and Albuquerque always stands out as an outlier in the bad sense. And why is that? You know, I don't know. Um, we don't know because we're not looking at it because most of those people getting killed aren't black. You know, I think there are many reasons. Gun culture has got to be a part of it. I think fewer cops is probably part of it, but this is all speculation. Um, that's kind of drugs, you know, there's more crystal meth and that I think leads to situations that get violent. So different kinds of drugs. But we don't know. And some of it, though, I think is how cops are trained. Some departments like the NYPD just do it better. Yeah. And instead of saying, well, why don't we figure out what they're doing right and see what part of that can be moved to places that are doing it worse? We don't. Instead, we complain. Tend to, we, you know, Because of the focus on urban policing, we tend to look at departments that do things a little bit better. You know, the, part of the problem is they're just so, you know, I don't even know, know if we know for sure, but there, you know, like seven, there, there, there's so many police departments in America, and most of them are very small. Um, but, you know, just suburban ones and places that are firmly conservative Republican districts, there's no accountability. Every shooting is rule justifiable because um, either they believe it is or, you know, it's such a small town that the prosecutor was the best man at the police chief's wedding kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You've said that the NYPD is arguably the best police force America has ever seen. What do you mean by that? And since when, would you say? I, I would say, yes, it's arguable. I'm not saying it, it's, it is true. And other people say, well, you know, the other, other departments do a good job, but you can make this for it. Um, and you can make the case by looking at any quantifiable measure we want to look at. So number of people cops shoot, arrests declining, uh, crime declining until recently, complaints going down, incarceration going down. By all these measures, the NYPD has been doing a great job, um, you know, really since the mid, early mid-90s. But some of the reform happened earlier in terms of cops shooting people. You know, cops in New York were shooting well over 100 people a year in the early 70s. Um, you know, every other day, cops would shoot somebody. Last year, I think five people were killed by cops in New York. Last time I checked this year, it's three. Wow. And this didn't happen by accident. You know, this happened because people saw it as a problem. And some of it was simply... Um, you know, keeping track of every time cops actually fire at their gun. Again, this seems common sense now. Uh, some of it was instituting policies that later became the standard for Tennessee versus Garner, which, um, again, my dates might be wrong off the top of my head. I think it was 1983. And that's the Supreme Court that said, among other things, you can't shoot a felon in the back just for fleeing unless there's an actual threat, an imminent threat to safety. NYPD implemented that earlier. You know, I worked with a cop who went on the, he was, it's a cop longer than I've been alive. He came on the for Baltimore police force in 19, I think, 68. And he, of course, had wonderful stories of the old days. But he said, you know, I, boy, I shot at a lot of people back then. I never hit any of them. And he said the best part was there was no paperwork. All I had to do was buy more ammo. And so that was the world that policing was at in the 60s. And, you know, bit by bit, but department by department, that changed. And so now police departments shoot a fraction. And we don't, of course, have good national data on this, but every city that we can look at, um, Chicago, it tends to be the big cities where you can find this out, but Chicago and New York and Los Angeles see this huge reduction of police shooting people in the 70s and 80s. It goes up a bit in the late 80s because it also is related to violent crime. As, as shootings in the city went up, cops were in situations where they shot more, but there's this long-term downward trend. 
which has been flat, by the way, since since 2015. It's remained a constant over these past five years. But the point is, we made things a lot better. I don't think anyone knew, knew about that or knows about this. Um, at the same time, by the way, policing became safer. And again, that's, I think, through better training, through the use of body armor. Um, but these are sort of the nuts and bolts, nitty gritty part of incremental reform that aren't very popular these days. Um, but we have been making things better. And it all seems to be sort of going out the window now. Yeah, I mean, Roland Fryer, who's an economics professor at Harvard, authored a study back in 2016 that found that when it came to actual police shootings, there is no racial disparity. A lot of conservatives have glommed onto that study, and a lot of progressives have poked holes in it. But, you know, one of the things that I found striking from that was, according to his research, in some cases, officers were less likely to shoot at a Black suspect than a white suspect. And I think this is from data collected in Houston. Can you explain what's going on there? Um, I can't speak to the specific uh, study, but I think you summarized the response pretty well. I'd say the response from the left has been not just picking apart, you know, holes in it, but it's been really a full-on attack of of Roland Fryer um, because the conclusions don't fit their narrative. Let me turn it. Let me use sort of a non-scientific uh, way to demonstrate this. When I, I mean, I see a lot of videos of cops shooting people because, unfortunately, it's sort of part of my job, I guess to analyze these things. And when you see like Philandro Castillo in Minnesota, and it's just, that to me was shocking. Um, and partly it's because I worked in a rough neighborhood with a lot of crime and violence that was 100% African-American, um, really like 98% or something. And if you work in a high crime neighborhood as a cop, you sort of develop a better sense of what constitutes legitimate danger or not. You don't get scared so quickly. Um, you can't because it's just it's a different environment. So a lot of these bad shootings, and this is, you know, there's some selection bias and from my in my perspective, um, but they seem to happen in places that don't have a lot of violent crime. And so the cop freaks out because it maybe it's the first time they've been in this situation, and then their mind flashes back to the videos that were shown in the police academies of cops getting ambushed and killed, and, and they overreact and they shoot shoot when they shouldn't shoot. So I think that is part of, um, and it's probably more likely to happen like with Philando Castillo to a black person in a neighborhood with low crime than a white person mm. in a neighborhood with low crime. But the, I think there's just, um, in neighborhoods that have a high amount of violence that are disproportionately minority, you see cops more restrained. And some of that I think is because of what I just described, that sort of interpersonal reactions and the training you get. Some of that is policing in those neighborhoods and those cities have been held more accountable over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that matters. Where, you know, if you know that it's going to be judged, um, you're probably less likely to less likely to shoot. But that gets back again to those regional disparities. And we could reduce the number of people cops shoot. But to do that, it's not going to be through implicit bias training. Um, it's going to be through better policy, better laws, and, 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 better, and better training. So I want to talk about cameras for a minute here. So both police body cams and the rise of civilians being able to film anything in their midst. So let's take the first one. How long have we had police body cams? They're they're now mandatory, right? But how long have they been in existence and how long? No, they're not mandatory everywhere. There's still oh, a lot of not. departments that don't. Um, okay. they're, very, they're still very expensive because of the data storage issues. The, you know, the companies almost give away the cameras, but then you got to pay for the storage because it's not just keeping it on a hard drive. You know, you have to keep it in a secure way that's accessible and will stand that has a chain of D for court. So um, it's, it's, it's not easy to do, but they 
you know, these are for profit companies who make a lot of money off of it. But a lot mm. of departments now have um, body cameras. You know, they've dashboard cameras have existed, I guess, since the 90s. Okay. And then body cams have really taken off in the past, say, decade. And I mean, it's an interesting progression because originally it was pushed by, you know, the ACLU and, and other groups as a way to, you know, finally showing what cops really do and to hold police accountable. And then um, as it turns out that, you know, most of the time police are doing what they're supposed to be doing, a lot of those groups are against body cameras because they have actually become a great aid in prosecution because uh, they show the cop side of the story. Oh. At, at some point, you know, I've also heard there was a, gen when they came out, cops resisted them with a passion. Now cops support them for, yeah. there's also a generational thing where I think if you grow up with, you know, a smartphone, you're less likely to see a camera as intrusive. So uh, the other point is, is there's, you know, they're inevitable. You don't want police to be the only people on the scene that aren't recording it. Because a lot of what comes, you know, in the old days, I joke, you know, cops had to do something bad to get in trouble. Now cops are often doing what they're supposed to be doing and getting in trouble. And that what they're supposed to be doing is using force when they need to. Uh, but, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll see a cell phone video of 20 seconds of cops trying to get a resisting suspect in handcuffs, which is really difficult. And you don't see what led up to that. So that's where the body cams are useful. They, they do provide potentially greater sort of context. And I went, not never the complete story, but more of the complete story. And I think they probably do make cops behave better because they are being recorded. So that's, it, it, in my mind, it's win-win. Well, there is, you know, what, what worries me, and we have to embrace them. They're inevitable. Arguments against body cams are pointless because they're here and they're here to stay. But I do worry about how it limits police discretion a little bit. Um, it's harder to cut someone a break if it's on camera, because if something goes wrong, you don't have plausible deniability anymore and saying, well, why didn't you arrest that person when you could have? Oh, you mean with their supervisors? What do you mean yeah. exactly? Okay. You, you, you say, look, just, you know, you catch someone with drugs and you just say, get out of here, go home and you, oh, you, know, you throw the drugs down the sewer. Oh. That is um, right. something I did. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I, it's, you're not supposed to do it. But the alternative is arresting the person. And, I, you know, sometimes you'd realize that's not the best solution. So it sort of takes the nuance and, and humanity out of the interaction. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes people need to be yelled at. And that never looks good on camera. But right. if you think of it this way. When cops are dealing with the public, there are really only a couple of ways the situation is going to resolve, which is the cop walks away, the person walks away, or the person gets arrested. That's it. It's just a question of how we get there. And... Sometimes you need something between walking away and arrest and a stern talking to um, can serve us. But that's not, it's not in the manual. Uh, and, and potentially a cop could get, you know, God forbid you swear at the person. I mean, there's such a weird tenderness uh, and a lot of criticism of police um, in what is a very rough country we live in. <laughs> right. I mean, what about the fact that civilians are just filming everything all the time? The perception that there are horrific interactions between police and the public every day, it has come ab about because the videos that go viral are the exceptions, but they happen to go viral and we see them. And I think it was Will Smith who said, racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. And that's kind of true of a lot of things. So uh, do you feel that the sort of the viral video phenomenon has played a huge role in in our current movement? Absolutely. Yeah. Because it did open up the ugliness of policing 
to a lot of people who didn't think it existed. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of white people in safe neighborhoods. And suddenly you say, oh my God, is that what's going on? Well, yeah. And in as much as these videos can make things better again, I say, great. But what's happening is the response from politicians, mostly to viral videos, is saying, the result is let's have less, less policing. You know, de-escalation training is great, and I mean that sincerely, but there are times when it's not appropriate. Um, sometimes you got to go in and grab somebody because, you know, there, there's a danger when situations prolong themselves. If you can end a situation by grabbing someone and taking them into custody in five seconds, that might be better than a half hour of de-escalation when there's a chance during that half an hour something goes wrong. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have that training yeah, and it doesn't mean it can't be effective in other situations. But this idea that, that we can have policing that doesn't use force, that isn't hands-on, that, that demands voluntary compliance from people um, is absurd because almost by definition, if there was voluntary compliance, you know, cops probably wouldn't be there in the first place. There's an academic from the 70s, a guy named Egon Bittner, who talked about police discretion and the role of the function of police in modern society. And he defined police as the agency um, by which force might have to be used or the threat of force. And this, you know, this overlaps well with the defund movement because you can maybe identify situations that don't involve force or the potential use of force and say police shouldn't be there. But when force might be needed uh, because other things have failed as, as the last, you know, the, where the buck stops, I think have to become a little more accepting of the idea that we do have police because of their ability to use force. Um, and if we don't want that, you know, come up with some alternative. But if it is a necessity, then we have to be a bit more tolerant when cops do use force. And I'm talking about legal, lawful, moral force even. Um, but that's, the, I think, the issue with these videos, again, is it's sometimes it's when cops are doing the right thing that they're getting in trouble just because it's ugly. Yeah. And actually, I'm thinking now, are there any countries that are known for the cops not using force? Is I think in the UK, do they not carry guns? Do they walk around with nightsticks? Yeah, most, well, and mace and tasers. Most cops in the UK do not carry guns. They do have armed response units. Irish Guardi are unarmed. I'm trying to think if there are others. Those may be the... I mean, like in, in Sweden, do they have this problem? We're always going to go to Sweden, but is it because there are just well, so are many... Cops are in Sweden. They are. Oh, okay. That would be... That's not part of their PR, but good to know. I mean, the difference is, of course, people, the, the public aren't carrying as many guns. Right. I mean, right. that's when, because I've done research both in England and the Netherlands with them. And, you know, cops in Amsterdam are all armed, but when they approach someone, they can safely assume that that person is, does not have a gun. And that's not, you know, there are guns and illegal guns in Holland as well, but in England, they assume, and it doesn't, by the way, mean cops use less force you know, British cops can be pretty rough too. And partly because they're not armed, mm. um, it does change policing. And I think in many ways for the better, because, you know, they know that they don't have that ultimate resort of lethal force if things go wrong. So they have to deal with situations in a slightly different way. But you can't transplant that to a nation where there are, you know, hundreds of millions of guns out there and people use them. That's the big difference. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the way the media is reporting on the police, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter activism 
around George Floyd's killing. Just today, in fact, we're recording this on August 7th, there was an article in the New York Times, I don't know if you saw it, about the damage done by protesters in Seattle and the inability of police to protect civilians and small businesses. Specifically, a group of local business owners are suing the city. And it was also reported that small businesses are paying private security guards who are officially affiliated with Black Lives Matter to protect their businesses, mostly from white protesters associated with Antifa. So this is remarkable, not only for the story in and of itself, but for the fact that it is one of very few stories we've seen along these lines. I think Nancy Rommelman in Reason has been doing reporting uh, along these lines as well, but it's certainly the exception and not the rule. So what comes into your mind when you read the newspaper? If you still read the newspaper, when you read the news, when you see what's being reported? I still believe in journalism in the newspaper. Okay. <laughs> and just when I give up on the New York Times, they actually come on with a decent story. Um, I haven't read that story yet. I only read summaries of it this morning. You know, what happened in Seattle was interesting because, again, it gets to this idea of police abolition that, you know, if we get rid of cops, things will be better. And what you find very quickly is that, I mean, this is why police were established in America was um, to deal with urban disorder. And, and you know, the, the origins of police in, in America do not, by and large, come from slave catchers. Slave catchers certainly were very real. Um, but no, it comes from the British model of preventive policing, and it was called the new police. And, and you know, it, it, the idea of patrolling to prevent crime was a new concept in 1845 New York City. So we've forgotten that because, hell, it was a long time ago. And we've forgotten that because there's revisionist history now that ignores it. So in Seattle, other organizations will fill the gap, um, just like they did before we had policing. And those are a combination of social organizations of neighborhood gangs of extortion rackets but there if there is a a vacuum of authority people are going to fill it the question is going to fill it um i mean in seattle you know two unarmed black kids got shot but it wasn't by cops it was by some security you know it's it's just the role of policing was filled within weeks and ended up with the same problem but probably worse because of no training and accountability this is, we don't want policing to be in private hands any more than we want prisons to be in private hands. This should be a municipal, accountable bureaucracy set up by the state to serve the people. I mean, that's the, someone's going to be, yeah, the cost also of defund, if places then have to hire private security, I mean, what a, what an incredible expense that is. Whatever, actually, this just popped into my head. Whatever happened to the guardian angels? In New York City. Oh, they're still around. Curtis Lee was still. Yes, I saw one once on the subway a few years ago, and I didn't know if it was like somebody in a in a costume. It was <laughs> well, an yes, actual was. guardian angel. But no, probably an actual guard. <laughs> well, not if that person was alone. That would be odd. No, there were two of them. It was okay, a, there was okay. a man and a woman. But I yeah. thought, oh, you know what amazes me about that? And you know, Curtis Lee was a to put it mildly an interesting character. But so they've been around since. I don't know, 80s, I want to say. I saw them in Chicago growing up. They came to Chicago in the late 80s. What amazes me is they've never had a major scandal. I mean, Curtis Sliwa made some stuff up about other things. Right. But given the fact that they're not paid and, you know, coming from high-risk groups, and, like, it amazes me that, that they've had, you know, basically 
three, four decades of, of scandal-free existence. I mean, you know, there's no, you know, the guardian angels, have, as far as I know, have, you know, never raped anybody, have never, you know, they, they've been, in, I mean, they're much smaller, but it's, it's kind of a, from looking at it from the perspective of, of a police department where they're always, you know, scandals and cops behaving stupidly. I, right. And I may, it may be just me not knowing about it, but I've kind of been impressed at the discipline that the guardian angels have shown over the years. And they were and are unarmed. They don't carry firearms, right? Yeah, and they cold people until cops come. Right. And, you know, there, there was a big, you know, ideological divide about them. I suppose there still is. But they also filled in the 80s of, again, the need that people felt for public order on first on, you know, on the subways of New York City. And as policing gradually took over that role in the 90s and crime plummeted, you know, it made the guardian angels a bit superfluous. And, you know, that, that's fine. I want to understand something about crime in New York City in the 90s, because my understanding was that the reason it went down was because Rudy Giuliani, mayor much of that time, was enforcing, like, you know, really, really racist policies that these were policies that were benefiting affluent white people in the city. This, you know, this Amadou Diallo case, that was this horrible police brutality case. And I remember the news reports where the cops were saying something like, it's Giuliani time now. And, you know, this is how it's going to be. That part of the story, I believe, was apocryphal. Okay. Okay. But that's so minor compared to the true horrificness of what happened. Yeah. In that case. Yes. But overall, like, do you think that the police policies in New York City in the 90s were fair. I mean, I definitely made the city safer, but my it's funny because my understanding is like, you know, middle class white chick was that, well, you know, they're good for you, but they're racist and these are hurting minority communities. And, you know, don't, you know, don't get so excited about it. I think a lot about this. My next book is actually an oral history of the crime drop from the uh, police perspective, talking to cops who were on the job and say what, you know, what, if anything happened, how did your job change? I do give Bill Bratton a lot of credit. I don't like to give Giuliani credit because, you know, he's batshit crazy and racist. At the time, he was just, I think, racist and wasn't quite so batshit crazy. But he had, I'll give him credit for appointing Bratton as police commissioner, but Bratton truly turned around that organization. And it was, you know, I won't get into all the details unless you want me to, but at a fundamental level, he said, our job is crime prevention. And that sounds obvious coming from a police chief, but it hadn't been said for decades. And that goes back to the 1968 Kerner Commission on Crime in response to riots that kind of laid out the what has remained the, the progressive or liberal idea of the role of police in society is to arrest offenders and we have to fix the root causes to prevent crime. It also coined the phrase the criminal justice system, which is sort of a misnomer because it's not a system. It's, you know, it's a bunch of independent systems. But cops sort of begrudgingly gave up their the role of crime prevention um, and said, fine, if you don't think that's our job, we'll just respond after the fact, pick up the pieces and arrest people, you know, who committed a serious crime. Um, a lot of it also was resp in response to corruption in the NYPD, going back to Serpico and later issues as well. But the idea was, if you were commanding a police precinct, no one really held you accountable for crime as long as you had a certain clearance rate, as long as you're making a certain number of arrests based on that. The big thing was to avoid scandal. And so if you could just keep a clean house or keep things, you know, covered until you were somewhere else and then have it explode, you were fine. So Bratton came in and said, no, we're going to, you know, first he said, we're going to bring down murders 15%. And um, everyone said, that's crazy. And he 
exceeded that goal. And he did it by um, what is now almost a toxic word, but um, I think it may have to be, the phrase may have to be reinvented, but the concept is fabulous. It's broken window style of policing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Got a bad reputation. Yeah. And it's, you know, when it was on the cover of Time Magazine, this is why Bratton got fired, because he was on the cover of Time Magazine and not Giuliani. And it led to their, that led to their split. It pointed out that it was community policing. The idea of broken windows comes very much from Jane Jacobs' book and concept of what makes a city work. And uh, it, it, involved, it says we're going to ask the community, it comes from the bottom up. We're going to ask the community, what are the, what are the problems here? What do you want cops to do? And a lot of that was dealing with quality of life issues of, you know, public urination, of open drug use, of rowdy kids, people, of things that make reasonable people afraid. That's when it's a broken window. It's not zero tolerance, though it morphed into that in later years. Um, but that's not broken windows. It, it says we as citizens have a right to a civil society. We have a right not to be afraid to walk down the street. And there are actual offenses that we can enforce. And the idea was not to arrest everybody. The idea is to change behavior. The idea is to have society start policing itself a little bit better. And it worked. Um, I won't say it's, you know, the entire thing, but, you know, other, it's, it's always complicated. No one knows for sure. But yeah, policing in New York, and it spread quickly too, which accounts, I think, for some of the nationwide decline, but crime dropped more in New York. And while life may have gotten better for you as a, as a young white woman, it really got better for minorities in high crime neighborhoods. I mean, when murder drops, 80%, that almost exclusively benefits poor Black and Hispanic New Yorkers, because they're the victims of violent crime, vastly disproportionately. So those lives that are saved, those are, you know, those are real people who were not shot and killed. We're talking, you know, hundreds, well, now actually thousands of people not killed every year and many thousands of people not shot every year. You know, mur so murders went down from about 2,200 uh, to under 300 um, in a recent year. That's a real decline. And that is what allows the rest of society. You cannot have, people cannot succeed, cannot succeed in life. They cannot succeed in school if they live in a neighborhood where there are gunshots every day. You can't do your homework. You can't, you know, have a nice dinner. Um, you can't go to the bodega. This, the violence is so segregated in America because America is so segregated, but the benefits to the crime reduction affect poor people the most. And that is partly what I get so, maybe even worse than frustrated, I get so upset now when you have people who live in safe neighborhoods saying, we don't want policing in other people's neighborhoods because we think it's oppressive. Well, first, yeah, ask the people. So, I, it, you know, Broken Windows was opposed from the beginning because it is fundamentally, in a, you know, it is an aggressive form of policing. It's putting police in a role they hadn't been in before. Yeah, it has a nanny state quality to it, I suppose. Yeah, and that's why it needs, you know, it needs, it needs to be accountable to the people and it needs good leadership to keep it on track. And it, it did go off track in New York City. Um, once, once you start judging it by stats and saying, you know, all arrests are good, then, you, then you've, it's no longer broken windows. Then people have made the argument that it's an inevitable consequence. And, you know, I respectfully disagree. But uh, there is a theory of broken windows that is, that is an excellent theory um, that is moral, legal, and effective. And at some point, you know, if things get bad enough, we're going to go back to that. But it's so, God, it's so much easier to keep crime down than to than to bring it down. Right. And that's the worrisome thing right now that these as shootings have tripled, you know, then you get retaliatory shootings. And God, the trauma of violence is, you know, it just it radiates with such power and goes through the generations. And so, yeah. Have you had 
interactions with, say, white anti-police activists where you try to reason with them? Like, how do the conversations go? Have you ever actually sat down with one of them and tried to talk it through? Yeah. Um, a lot of my friends fit that category. <laughs> there is some sort of ignorance of, of the numbers, the big data picture where, you know, people just don't know where they think, you know, well, I've heard there's an epidemic of police shooting, so it must be increasing because that's the definition of an epidemic. Well, it's not. Oh, okay. So, you know, that's partly I try and approach it as a teacher, but partly you can't argue with people's anger and frustration and what they believe is. <laughs> there's the police coming exactly, to get you. Exactly. <laughs> they're coming to get me, man. You know, what they believe to be on the right side of history. And so they want to believe a certain narrative. Um, and the media, and I don't like criticizing the media, but it's hard not to in recent years, in police coverage at least, you know, the, the, the media has been incredibly biased um, against police and has fed this narrative. You know, and then of course you see, and then cops do bad things. And so it's like, well, you know, I don't know what to say about that. Well, I like to make those situations happen less, which is true, but it just, it's just such a weak argument when someone's going, this is it, this is horrible. I am angry at this incident. There's not much you can say to that. Yeah. So speaking of all of this, there's a Medium post from June of this year, a few months ago, called Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. It was written by an anonymous poster who calls himself Officer A, initial A, cab, and that would be, I guess, referring to the acronym ACAB. All cops are bastards. I actually had to look that up. I wasn't really sure what. And I was a, a kid. A it was all cops meant. or pigs. Okay. Well, I guess it's not fair to pigs to to uh, put them in that bucket. So this this article, uh, you know, this writer says he was a police officer in a major metropolitan area in California with a predominantly poor, non-white population. I'm assuming this is a he, notwithstanding his reliance on a lot of locutions we hear coming out of the white privilege arena. He talks about being ashamed of his time in the force, causing hurt, hesitating to write this piece because he doesn't want to center himself. He makes a number of startling statements, the sum total of which is essentially that even if not all cops are rotten apples, there is such a code of silence around misconduct in the force that they might as well all be. So I, I want to talk to you about this article. I don't know if you read it or not, but there are a couple of lines that really jumped out at me. This writer writes, if you take nothing else away from this essay, I want you to tattoo this onto your brain forever. If a police officer is telling you something, it is probably a lie designed to gain your compliance. There's some truth to that. Uh, I wouldn't know, not necessarily even a lie, but um, I mean, if you have committed a crime or are the suspect, um, it is generally very good advice to not say anything to cop. And it's kind of shocking how rarely people actually follow that advice. Now, I could also say if you've committed a crime, I want you to get caught. I mean, that's the other factor. Um, so yeah, cops will use tricks and deviousness um, and probably not on your side, but it's not universal. There is a point where you're not a suspect and they just they want information or they want information to clear you. You know, sometimes things can get resolved very quickly. Cops are all, you know, very used to people lying to them basically to some degree all of the time. So on the rare occasion when someone actually just tells them the truth, it, you know, cops can cut you a break sometime too. What struck me about that article, first of all, that department is as bad as he says. Um, he should out it. Yeah. Where do you think it is? What's your best guess? I don't know California well enough, uh, but probably one of those departments where cops shoot a lot of people. So 
I only know policing from the departments that I've done research on and, and, and worked in. That police department may exist just as he described it, though I'm a little skeptical of many of his claims. But so, yeah, so then we got to fix it. But in the same way that New York City is exceptionally good on quantifiable measures, other departments are exceptionally bad. And that might be one of them. Um, so let's figure out what's going on. The other thing about that article, though, at the end, it was just, it's rooted was in a, it was just an anti-capitalistic screed at some point, which I thought was an odd way to frame policing was simply that it's a tool of capitalism and that's why we should get rid of cops. So, you know, if you want to take a Marxist or neo-Marxist perspective, um, go right ahead. Well, all roads can lead back to that very easily. But uh, he kept on getting back to this real opposition was capitalism. Right. All roads can lead back to, yes. ca- to capitalism being the, the root cause. So the other part, though, is there is a small cadre of people, and they usually get embraced by anti-policing perspectives until the small cadre, you find out that actually they're the problem. There is a difference between whistleblowing and confessing. And just because you were part of something bad and now are you know, anonymously admitting it, um, that actually might just be an indictment of you. Why were you doing this? There are cops who rat out other cops all the time. Cops rarely, it's embarrassing actually how frequently cops in like New York City are arrested, uh, usually for off-duty, you know, nonsense. Um, But when cops go to trial, cops aren't going to go to prison for some cop who did something wrong. They're not going to, I mean, all cultures and organizations have a certain code of silence, which isn't necessarily bad. Um, Policing, it's, there's probably more of it. Um, but it's not, it's, it's overblown, this, this idea that cops never say bad things about other cops. Um, usually cops get caught because they're ratted out by another cop. But don't, yeah, don't, don't quit and then confess and pretend that you're innocent and society is to blame. Well, he doesn't pretend he's innocent. I'll give him credit for that. He writes, the majority of my time in the academy was spent doing aggressive physical training and watching video after video after video of police officers being murdered on duty. Now, you were a police officer. You went to the police academy, and I want to talk about that, too. But as a way of segueing into that, was that your experience during your training? You know, despite a sort of ideological bias I have against that article as I read it, I was reading and going, you know, a lot of what he's saying is right. The academy is a great place where things could get better. Um, yeah, it was. I wrote about that in Cop in the Hood. Uh, it was largely a waste of time. I would say that the practical training was good, the gun range, the driving training. And I even thought in uh, the legal classes. And, you know, granted, I was a Harvard grad student at the time, so I was perhaps more interested in that. But it was well taught. But you have six months, and it is so much of it is a waste. and. A lot of it is, there's a video from, I think, probably from the 80s. Every cop knows the name Dink Heller, and no one else in society does. The famous Dink Heller video, and there are others like it, but, he, but he's, you know, gets the trademark on the name almost. But Dink Heller, God, I don't want to get it wrong if he was the cop or the guy who killed the cop. But there was a man who's acting goofy at a traffic stop, and the cop doesn't perceive the threat quickly enough, and the cop gets murdered. And it's caught on, you know, open mic, and it's, it's brutal. Um, you do need some of that. But you also have to put it in perspective. One of the ways that cops have, by the way, I mean, again, this is the nitty gritty that people don't want to focus on when they can chant slogans. But there, um, since that time, there, there's these shoot, don't shoot situations. Um, one of the brands is called FATS, FATS, and there's another one. But they're basically 
interactive simulations. There's an operator uh, where you're given a replica gun and, and presented with situations and you make decisions and, and the scene evolves around the decisions you make. And the goal is to not shoot when you don't have to shoot. The goal is to, you know, to not shoot people who aren't threats. And the goal is to also to shoot people who are threat. This, it's expensive training because it's, you know, one-on-one, but it's shown to be effective. Um, and that's sort of, that's one of the ways in which you can improve police use of force. But yeah, there are a lot of snuff films you see in the academy. <laughs> what are the chances of actually, A, drawing your gun and B, shooting somebody if you are a police officer in a major city over the course of your career? It depends so much on the city. I did some back of the envelope calculations on this comparing like Bakersfield or and, and New York City. Some of those medium-sized cities out west, over the course of your career, the odds get a little greater than you would like. And I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. In New York City, they're basically zero. Zero that you're going to draw your gun at all? No, uh, that you're going to shoot someone. Shoot somebody. I probably had my gun out of the holster every other or every third day as a cop, by the way. Um, mind you, it oh, wasn't pointed at somebody. I want to get to that, but okay. So well, you're, re- you're going in a vacant building. Um, right. Okay. So it is unlike the TV shows where they have the, the gun. They're, they've got the gun out and they're kind of going around the corner, the dark corner. Yeah. I mean, I pointed a gun at two people in, in 14 months on the street. And I'd say that's wow. where I police kind of par for the course. You know, I didn't ever, I didn't. But, even, you know, yeah, even it's it's a rare occurrence. I mean, you think of this way, there's 700, roughly 700,000 cops in America. Um, cops shoot and kill a thousand people. Let's say, and we don't know how many people cops shoot and don't kill, but let's let's say it's another thousand. So, you know, we're talking 2,000 shootings out of three quarters of a million cops. So in, in one year, it's still a rare event. There was the case in Dallas of Tony Timpa, who was mentally ill and ended up dead in police custody. Do you know the details of that? What could you say about that? I don't know the details other than it parallels um, the killing of George Floyd in a very similar way. The difference being that Tony Tempa wasn't black. And it hasn't been reported on very much. It's been it's gotten some coverage, but not as much as you might think. Well, if you once you take the race angle out, it doesn't get traction in the media. And this does influence public perception. So, it, you know, you have to be able to see that race is a factor in America and not see it as the only factor in these situations. And sometimes it's not a factor at all. But, well, if we only report on white cops shooting black people, people will logically think that's all that happens. And then the problem is seen as one of white cops shooting black people. But, it, you know, we were in a diverse country and police departments. I mean, it's a weird defense to say cops shoot white people, too. It doesn't necessarily make it better, but it does point to what we might have to do to reduce the number of shootings or killings in this case. There are, we know, so just I mean, people may be interested. If you add people killed without guns, and that means by hands or taser, though, once you get a taser, you know, sometimes people do just die uh, in response to a struggle. Uh, but we're, it's probably about 10% of killings in, at, at the hands of police are not with a gun. It's just so, it, you know, they're about 100 a year that fit that category. You worked as a police officer while you were doing PhD research. Was that strange? So there you were, Princeton undergrad, master's degree from Harvard, and you're, you were on the police force in Baltimore City. Is that right? 
Yeah, I went there first to not be a cop and just do research. And that the Baltimore Police Department said after I got there that I couldn't do that anymore. So it it was a very unique situation that I was in. I was pretty warmly embraced, I would say. I thought it would be a bigger deal than I was some Harvard kid. My sort of pat answer is, I think to be accepted as a cop, it, you know, there, there are three things you're, you're judged on. And if you can pass two of those, you'll probably be okay. But when I was a cop, if you did your job, that was number one. Uh, that was a plus. If you weren't an asshole, that was a plus. And if you went out drinking after work, that was a plus. And you, two out of three is fine, but I, I kind of managed all three. And, you know, everyone has their hustle. Like at, to, at some point, a lot of people become, most people become cops because it's a job, which isn't bad. Uh, just, you know, the post office wasn't hiring. Uh, it's, it's a way for a lot of Americans and in a place like in New York for a lot of immigrant Americans to break into America's working class. In other places, it can be, you know, a bit more of a white uh, type of, you know, old boys club. There's that there, there still is that part to it. But, um, you know, I did my job and I took professional pride in what I was doing and everyone knew that I was going to write a book on it. Uh, but at some point, if you're with someone, you know, eight hours every workday, They just accept you for who you are, for better or for worse. And I was actually going to ask you that very question. What kind of people become cops now? Are the standards too low? It would always be better to have higher standards. I mean, this is the other frustrating part about recent events is people, the pool of recruits is going down. That's not going to improve policing. It's, you know, why would someone want to become a cop right now? Mm -hmm. It's a tough job to recommend. Part of, you know, when people say, oh, why are cops such crybaby saying they need to be supported, do your job. Well, yes and no. But part of that agreement is that cops do believe that they are on the side of good. They do believe that they are the ones that are speaking for dead people. Um, They're the ones on the side of victims. And if you take that moral high ground away from policing, it, it shakes the police officer perspective of their job or worldview. Yeah, policing is going to get worse if we get worse recruits. Now, the question is, how do you get better recruits? Um, one of the would be great if you could just raise the age, I think. You know, I don't think 22-year-olds are mature enough to be cops. But if you raise the age to, you know, 25 or 28, then how are you going to get, you know, people already have careers right. and so on. Right. At some point, if you have, if, you know, college, it would be good to have more college requirements. Most police departments don't. But if you have a clean record and a college degree, you can probably get a better paying job than being a police officer. So, you know, at some point you get what you pay for. And I see this as becoming a greater problem in the future because we won't know it's a problem till years down the road when bad things happen and, you know, cities pay out settlements and that kind of thing. But we would, you want to raise standards, but you still need recruits. And that is the instant dilemma really of any occupation. But, um, it's it's more applicable in policing. You teach police science and law, is that right? I don't teach law. It's just in the department. Okay, it's, a, it's an umbrella department. Um, I teach police-related classes. Um, I teach active New York City executive cops, and I teach, uh, though I haven't in a while, unfortunately, because I'm department chair, replaces what I like about the job with committee meetings. But in general, uh, I teach undergrad New York City kids who many of whom uh, are considering uh, a career in law enforcement but it's 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 it is a four year you know liberal arts degree so you could do whatever you want does with it. that mean they want to be cops on the street like what do they aspire to do in general your students you know I'm teaching because I'm teaching police related classes even if for my college it's a bit of a more police focused the students 
I would say half of the students are half of them. You know, it's it's college. You know, they want to get a job after it, but they're they're almost exclusively immigrants and kids of immigrants, and generally, it's the first they want a job where they think they can do good. Um, they're from the city. They understand the complicated dynamics of race and crime and and New York City. They want to be on the on the right side, uh, but they also they they want a job with benefits. You know, it's it's an economic step up. Um, and again, New York is somewhat unique in these factors. But um, yeah, all, almost all the undergrads are minority immigrants and kids of immigrants. Back in June, you said in an interview with Aria Cohen Wade on Blogging Heads that you had no idea what Derek Chauvin was thinking when he was putting his knee on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. Two months later, do you have a better idea? No, I, I still don't. Now we there's more, you know, we we now have a better sense of the whole scene. Um, but that the, what happened before doesn't surprise me. Some sort of instinct cop defenders like, so see, you know, George Floyd made a lot of bad choices. Yeah, no shit. You know, people police deal with generally made a lot of bad choices. In this case, often I'm, you know, often I want to see what happened before. In this case, it's it doesn't really clarify anything for me because it's still those eight minutes of what the hell are you doing? I'm still baffled. And he should not have been a field trainer. <laughs> that the field training officer is the cop who takes people out of the academy and basically a clone of himself. So what do you imagine will happen in terms of prosecution? I think he'll get convicted on something because um, I think a crime happened. I worry every time cops are put on trial, not for the sake of the cop. I worry because society tends to want to find great moral and social justice in these trials. And that's not the way our court system is set up. It's an individual defendant, in this case, the cop, on trial for a specific crime. And it's hard to convict people. And it's really hard to convict cops. In, usually, the defense is, is a reasonable, did the cop of a, would a reasonable police officer have been afraid when the cop used lethal force? That's not going to fly here, because I don't think the argument was that he was using lethal force. You know, he didn't shoot him. So this is, it makes his defense trickier, to say the least, that he now has to, um, but I don't know the, you know, it's going to come down to jurors asking details about specific parts of the legal code in Minnesota, which I'm not an expert in, and it's going to be messy. Um, I don't think anyone's going to be happy, because even if he can, even if he gets convicted, it won't be of, you know, premeditated murder, probably, and then so people are going to be upset. If he gets acquitted, boy, um, it's going to be ugly. And then there are the other cops involved, the ones who were standing around. I do have, by the way, and this, you know, I, with a big caveat that I don't know what they were thinking, but I do have an idea of what I think they were thinking, which is, first of all, this guy was their boss for the previous months. I think the one guy was only like two or three days on the job. Is that right? Well, but he had been through field training. Okay. First, to, for, okay. yeah, the lawyer initially said he was like three days out of the academy, and that turned out not boy. to be true. But I also think, so one, they're afraid and they're trained not to question this guy because he was their trainer. They probably hated him. And I can imagine them going, man, you're really messing up, but it's on you. Now, they didn't think that George Floyd was going to be killed. And that, I hope, might have changed how they reacted. But I can just imagine them when you, you know, just saying you're getting yourself in trouble here. But you know what? I want you to get in trouble. That might have been going through their mind. But that, unfortunately, in this case, was not enough. 
But it's going to be tough to convict them of the accomplices of a crime. But it, it could happen. You know, we convict people for murder who drive getaway cars. So, but you know, their their personal stories, or at least the one one lawyer's speaking a lot and the other isn't. But you know, the, it's an African American guy from Minneapolis, and you know, in theory, becoming a cop for all the right reasons and all that. So it, it's he seems to be more of a tragic um, a tragic case here. But yeah. I mean, there, there's yeah, but there should I mean. Floyd was killed and he shouldn't have been. I mean, it's all the details do sort of have to come down to that. Um, But what also, you know, what makes these protests, the post George Floyd protests somewhat unique as in the past, people have protested in the name of accountability and justice. In this case, we have it as much as it can be had in our country in the sense that the cop was arrested and charged. That is what we call justice. It might be unsatisfying, but that's why I worry about protests I mean, I want to say they don't have a cause. Of course they have a cause. It's to end police brutality. But that's you need specific goals that can be accomplished. Um, you need to know when to say mission accomplished here. And, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. When you're feeling optimistic, when you're having one of those days, what do you hope could come out of all of this? What would be the best case scenario? What are you hopeful about, if anything? Well, when I'm optimistic, I used to be optimistic. I remember those days. And I'm thinking about this professionally, so I'm focusing on policing and, and not greater issues of racial and social justice, but I hope things can get better. Um, but with policing, I hope that we can accomplish productive reform. I think there's been a reform movement of the past decade that has actually not been changed for the better. There is certainly an opportunity now that we've never had to make fundamental changes to policing. The question is, we, you know, who is going to advocate for changes that are good? How are they going to happen? It might, things might get better, but I mean, ultimately, from a policing perspective, you have to stay focused on the victims of crime. And we're not going to help the victims of crime with less policing. What do you tell your students? What do you think is the most important lesson that you impart to them? What is the most important lesson? Um, I don't have one overarching theme or, I mean, it's not the way I teach. I try and break it up. Uh, you know, I want to give them a sense of history and perspective and in policing. I want to teach them to appreciate, you know, science and data over anecdotes and statistics. But look, I'm a, you know, qualitative uh, academic. Um, I like talking to people. I also want people to understand you know, the various voices. And we we don't have to all agree on things because you never know if you're right. You know, I could be wrong about everything. I I know that. Um, and I always keep that in the back of my mind. So I, I try and teach them a little bit of doubt, um, try and impart them with a little bit of knowledge, um, try and not have my recent pessimism rub off on them. I want to make them more hopeful. Well, that's that's pretty much it. You know, I want them to to appreciate learning and and reading, and, and that you know, just as I, I I try and teach them how to write better. You know, these aren't big picture ideological uh, screeds I have. It's small incremental changes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of the game. Well, Peter Moskos, thank you so much for talking with me on the Unspeakable. I really appreciate your your insights and your time. And I appreciate being here, Megan. Thank you. That was my interview with policing and law enforcement expert Peter Moskos. You can visit his website at petermoskos.com. That's M-O-S-K-O-S. And also find him pretty easily on social media. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. 
And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com and you can listen there too. Tune in next week for another fantastic guest whom I'll announce very soon on the website. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campus in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.